Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. And now for part two of the wildly popular podcast that was released in October 2014, Commonly Missed Uncommon Orthopedic Injuries with Dr. Hussein Median and Dr. Ivy Cheng. Dr. Median is an orthopedic surgeon at North York General Hospital in Toronto. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, where he completed an adult reconstructive surgery fellowship and an upper extremity and trauma fellowship. He's also completed a hand and wrist fellowship at the Institut de la Main, Paris, France. Dr. Cheng is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and at the Sports Medicine Specialists Clinic in Toronto. She's an assistant professor and clinical investigator at the University of Toronto. She's a flight physician and assistant medical director of Sky Service Lifeguard, as well as the medical advisor for Outward Bound Eastern Division. So in this episode, we're going to narrow down our commonly missed uncommon orthopedic injuries to tendon and ligament injuries that you really don't want to miss in the emergency department. So let's just jump right into our first case. A 22-year-old football player comes into your ED after sustaining an ankle injury while being tackled. He can't recall exactly the details of the mechanism of injury, but he does complain of pain at the anterolateral ankle, but there's no swelling or tenderness at the medial or lateral malleoli. He's just barely able to weight bear. So Dr. Cheng, what kind of diagnoses are you thinking about at this point in this patient? We're not thinking of, you know, just a plain ankle sprain, we're not thinking of a lateral malleolus fracture. These are the things we see all the time. What might you be thinking of in this patient? Yeah. So if I saw this patient in my clinic, there's a few things. So sometimes you can actually just have a very subtle fracture off the lateral process of the talus, which is just called a snowboarder's fracture. But uh, that would be picked up actually on an image. The others actually is sometimes you can get impingement syndrome, which is just the pinching actually the synovium because of forced dorsiflexion actually of the foot against the anterior part of the ankle. And this actually can be managed conservatively as well. And then the third entity that you do have to pay attention to is a ligament injury or the high ankle sprain. And this is the syndesmosis, which is between the tibia and fibula that can also be injured. So this patient did end up having a significant syndesmosis injury or high ankle sprain. The distal tibiofibular syndesmosis was torn in this case. And as many as 20% of syndesmotic injuries may go undetected on clinical exam. So you need to know when and how to look for these injuries so you're less likely to miss them. So Dr. Median, what is the typical mechanism of injury for a high ankle sprain or syndesmosis injury? Again, it's uh, usually these are usually sports injuries, as mentioned in your case, very common in, in basketball. When they land down, they have an external rotation component injury to their ankle, and that is probably the most significant factor for causing these injuries. Okay, so most of the ankle sprains we see in the emergency department are an inversion rolling of the ankle. We've seen millions of those. But really, the key to the mechanism then is if there's external rotation of the ankle. So if you can get that from the history, then that's that's a key clue. Okay, and Dr. Cheng, in terms of the physical exam, what do you look for if you suspect, let's say the patient comes in after a sports injury with an external rotation ankle sprain and they're not weight-bearing too well, what do you look for in physical exam? Right. So first, just basically on inspection, when they walk in, sometimes if they're not really weight-bearing well, they might be actually walking on their toes. 
So what Dr. Cheng's referring to here is that they might be walking with their heel raised right up in the air to prevent painful dorsiflexion. Watch the patient walk. Having their heel up in the air, walking on their tippy toes on the one side, might be the first clue that they have a serious syndesmotic injury. The second actually is that you might see some swelling actually over the ankle, but not necessarily over the malleoli. The next thing you can do is you can actually stress the syndesmosis. So one thing you can do is do something called the squeeze test, where you actually squeeze the tibia and the fibula together. And essentially, you'll have pain actually at the syndesmosis, which is at the base of the tibia and the fibula junction near the talus. Okay. So if if you grab the patient's calf basically with both hands and squeeze. You're squeezing the two bones together, the tib and fib, and then you're stressing the syndesmosis. Okay. And then yes. so they'll complain of pain at the ankle when you're squeezing higher up exactly. in the calf. Exactly. Okay. Remember, you can get a false positive because if they have a fractured fibia, uh, fibula or tibia, they won't like that either. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's kind of similar to the Thompson test for Achilles rupture. Similar, but the Thompson's really looks actually at more of the gastrox. It doesn't, it's not supposed to really push on the bone and you really are forcibly pushing the tibia and fibula together. So it's just slightly different technique. Okay. Um, and then you can reproduce the injury. You can do something called external rotation test. So you take the foot and externally rotate it and there will be complaints actually of pain at the syndesmosis. Uh, the person can actually point to the area that it's sore and that can actually be at the syndesmotic junction where it connects to the fibula at that medial aspect of the fibula and you can put your finger in it and sometimes it can hurt it as well. So just to clarify the external rotation tests, you get pain over the syndesmosis, that's sort of the high ankle area, when you externally rotate and dorsiflex a little bit the foot with the knee and the hip flexed at 90 degrees. So imagine the patient sitting in a chair, knee and hip flexed 90 degrees, you stabilize their calf with one hand, you grab their foot with the other hand, and you externally rotate and dorsiflex a little bit, and that'll cause pain right at the syndesmosis. This has the lowest rate of false positive results. So again, the external rotation stress test entails stabilization of the leg with the knee at 90 degrees of flexion, followed by external rotation of the foot. We'll have a picture of the squeeze test and the external rotation test on the blog post and written summary. Okay, so the three key things then on physical exam are the patient might be walking on their tippy toes with their heel up in the air on the affected side that if you do the squeeze test where you try and compress together the tibia and the fibula, they'll get pain down at the ankle. And thirdly, that if you externally rotate the ankle, they'll complain of a lot of pain. Now, Dr. Median just has one important thing to add to look for on the physical exam before you decide that the patient just has a syndesmosis injury and nothing else. Don't forget, whenever you've got uh, syndesmosis injuries, always look for your medial side to make sure you don't have a concomitant deltoid ligamentous injury, because in that case scenario, the ankle becomes very unstable. So that you want to definitely document. I mean, I'm sure in this case, you mentioned that it wasn't painful on the medial side, but that's one thing you want to definitely make sure you don't have any other ligamentous injury in the ankle, specifically the deltoid ligament. Okay, so the deltoid ligament on the medial side, medial malleolus, the deltoid ligament basically attaches the medial malleolus to the rest of the ankle. 
that's the one that you want to examine for very carefully as well. Yes, because uh, it renders the ankle very unstable. If both the if you've got a, a syndesmosis injury associated with a deltoid ligamentous injury, then the ankle can literally come out of place. I, I recently had a case where it was interesting. You could not see any fractures on the patient, had a syndesmotic injury with a deltoid ligamentous injury, and the ankle was totally subluxed out of the joint. So it can happen. It's very uncommon, but it can happen. So that's what, one thing you don't want to miss, actually. So, again, like anything else, pay attention to other ligamentous structures around your ankle. Okay, so Dr. Median, so we definitely want to be looking at the deltoid ligament and the medial malleolus uh, when we're thinking about syndesmotic injuries or high ankle sprains. What do we look for on the x-ray if we do suspect a high ankle sprain? So, again, on the x-rays, you can look at the blog because there are Lots of signs on the x-ray that you can look for. It's the clear space. It's the overlapping that happens both in the AP and the mortis view. So I think these are better explained on the blog as opposed to me going through uh, each of them one by one because it makes it a pretty intensive uh, explanation. Okay. So suffice to say that there's really three things that you're looking for, the tibiofibular overlap, the medial clear space, and the syndesmosis clear space. Sure. Okay. And then we'll have some great pictures on the on the blog post for that. In cases where you have high fibular fractures, that is probably indicative of a syndesmotic injury, as we know all know about the Maisonov uh, fractures. That's one thing that you probably should pay attention to. It's uh, because the fibular fracture by itself is innocent, but it's the syndesmotic injury is the major problem. So, Dr. Median. If you do suspect a syndesmosis injury based on the history of an external rotation mechanism, an anterolateral ankle pain and tenderness, but the x-ray is normal, what do we do with these patients? Yeah, in these patients, my treatment, I mean, I, I've actually talked about this with many of my colleagues, and we all, all of us believe that we should... Uh, immobilize these patients and at the same time make them non-weight bearing. So that's the way I approach them. I don't know if there is any consensus in the sports medicine world or in the other aspects, but the way that we manage them is immobilize them and give them crutches for around four to six weeks before we let them weight bear. Okay. And if there's an obvious widening at the tibiofibular base there, like let's say it's two, three, four millimeters wide, how do you deal with those? Again, this is suggestive of the fact that the tibiofibular joint space is not reduced and it's kind of subluxed or dislocated. So that needs to be addressed. And interestingly enough, within the last few years, we have more or less been inclined to take these to the operating room, open them, reduce them under direct vision. While in the past, we used to just approximate them with a clamp without opening the joint and put a screw between them. So this has been changed within the last few years. Okay, so the patients who have a really big wide gap there, they'll actually need an ORIF. Exactly. They need a, a surgical intervention because it will affect the function of their ankle in the long term. So we've mentioned that syndesmotic injuries can happen on their own, that they can happen in conjunction with a deltoid ligament injury on the medial side of the ankle, that they can happen in conjunction with a proximal fibula fracture. Dr. Chang, what are some of the other orthopedic injuries that syndesmotic injuries are associated with? Yeah, so don't forget about the other Weber fractures uh, of the ankle, so the Weber Bs and Cs, and uh, always to take a look at the base of the fifth fractures for the foot. We see tons of base of the fifth metatarsal fractures. 
I mean, I wouldn't even think of checking the syndesmosis in that case. Yeah. So just remember that, you know, sometimes when you have one injury, you can have a second one. So it doesn't hurt to actually do a, a squeeze test or a check out if they actually have pain over the syndesmosic area of the ankle. Yeah. I'm just thinking there's times in the eMERGE where we have patients that are complaining both of foot pain and of ankle pain. And mm. we order a foot x-ray and an ankle x-ray. We see if base of the fifth metatarsal fracture. And then we say, well, you just wear a tight supportive shoe right. and follow yeah. up with your family yeah. doctor. Yeah. And um, that's what I was getting at is when you have good follow up, they'll still complain of the ankle. So oftentimes in the sports clinic, we pick them up actually about six weeks after the injury. It's an ankle sprain that doesn't heal. So while most isolated syndesmotic injuries are treated conservatively, it's important to explain to the patient that they might have a prolonged recovery period compared to a simple ankle sprain. And then there's the patient's with more than one millimeter of widening of their syndesmosis on x-ray that may require open reduction and internal fixation. So those patients should be seen by orthopedics in a timely manner. So let's review here syndesmotic injuries. Syndesmotic injuries can occur in isolation or can be associated with ankle fractures, base of the fifth metatarsal fractures, and proximal fibula fractures. They're usually sports injuries that result from external rotation of the foot as opposed to the most common mechanism of injury we see in ankle sprains, which is inversion of the ankle. So think of it as the opposite of the usual. The patient sometimes can't weight-bear, but if they are weight-bearing, one key pearl is that they usually limp in with their heel high in the air to avoid painful dorsiflexion of the ankle. So that patient that's on their tippy-toes on the one side, think syndesmosis injury. You can sometimes see swelling in the anterior ankle as opposed to the usual lateral or medial ankle, and palpating the syndesmosis is painful. The two key physical exam maneuvers are the squeeze test, where you squeeze together the tibia and fibula at the level of the mid-calf, which elicits pain at the ankle, and the external rotation test, where you stabilize the calf with one hand and externally rotate and dorsiflex the foot, which also elicits pain at the high ankle. Now, don't forget to examine the medial ankle looking for deltoid ligament injury. So on the x-ray, you're looking not only for widening of the syndesmosis, but also for widening of the medial clear space to rule out concomitant deltoid ligament injury. If the x-ray is normal, but you still suspect a syndesmosis injury, put the patient in a back slab or boot and have them non-weight bearing until they see orthopedics in a week or so. If there's more than one millimeter of widening of the syndesmosis on the AP view of the ankle, those patients may need an open reduction and internal fixation, and so orthopedics should be involved early on. Next, we've got the case of the construction worker who shouldn't have tried to lift that heavy bag of cement. A 48-year-old man comes into the ED from a construction site and while attempting to lift a bag of cement, experiences a sudden onset of pain in his arm, as well as hearing a snapping sound. On exam, he's able to actively move through a full range of motion of his elbow, but the doc notices a bulge in his bicep muscle, the so-called Popeye sign. He's diagnosed with a partial biceps tendon rupture, put in a sling, and sent home to follow up with his family doctor, as well as given a script for physiotherapy. So Dr. Cheng this sounds like a pretty classic history for a biceps tendon rupture or a partial biceps tendon rupture with the sudden force of the forearm against an elbow at 90 degrees in a middle-aged man. 
Would you manage this patient any differently than it was managed in this case with follow-up with a family doctor in a sling? Hmm. So, Anton, good question. Um, from the story and the age, and it was a man, I'm getting a little bit suspicious that this actually is the distal biceps uh, tendon rupture. Uh, so distal biceps tendon ruptures are at the elbow, and they do actually require as an orthopedic opinion and an operation. So if this were the case, this patient would be managed differently. Okay, so most of the biceps tendon ruptures that we see are proximal. Um, the long head of the, the biceps tendon that inserts proximally onto the humerus, yeah? That's correct. So the distal biceps tendon rupture is rarer, but it is the attachment of the biceps tendon actually onto the proximal radius. So let's talk a little bit more about this distal biceps tendon rupture. Dr. Median, are there any clues from the case that I presented that would make you think that it was a distal rupture rather than a proximal rupture? Sure. Eccentric contraction of the elbow against force. So you pick up something that wants to fall, you suddenly try to prevent it from falling, and you exert an eccentric contraction of the biceps, then that is probably the mechanism of injury. So that's number one. As opposed to the mechanism of a proximal biceps tendon injury, what are those? Proximal biceps tendon injury is usually a degenerative tear. It's associated with associated tear in the rotator cuff. The patient usually has symptoms of rotator cuff disease and with no reason suddenly they tear, they don't necessarily need to exert significant force on their proximal biceps. Okay, so those are generally the older patients, exactly. older than 50, 60, 70 years old, who will get the proximal ones with not much of a mechanism of injury at all. Uh, and it's the younger patients, say, in their 40s that have this sudden contraction of the biceps that it'll tear distally. Exactly. Whether it's a distal or a proximal biceps tendon rupture, they can both get the Popeye sign, right? So how can you tell on physical exam the difference between a distal and a proximal biceps tendon rupture. Look at the elbow. On inspection, you usually see evidence of ecchymosis on the anterior aspect of the elbow around the antecubital fossa where the insertion of the distal tendon of the biceps is because it evolves it creates bleeding. So that's number one. That's on inspection. On examination, some patients, you know, do show evidence of decreased force in supination specifically because the amount of power in supination decreases. So you can examine their supination and see whether it's decreased or not. Okay, so while they can move through a full range of motion in their elbow, if you actually test supination, that's where it's Specifically supination. And number three, on physical examination, the hook sign is a very sensitive sign. Actually, it's been shown in different studies, sometimes it's 100% sensitive. And the hook sign is relatively easy to perform. You get your index finger, you go from the lateral aspect of the insertion of the biceps, do it on yourself. You can do it easily. And then you can see that you can put your index finger, it goes around a centimeter underneath your biceps, and you can lift your biceps up. When you do it on a patient who's got a tear in their biceps, you can't hook that index finger under their biceps insertion. It's literally an empty space. So it's a very good test. You don't necessarily need to go for ultrasound MRI. If you've got a positive hook sign, the positive history, ecchymosis, you've got a biceps tear in a male patient. It's exclusively in males. So in this case, the physician treated the patient as if it was a proximal biceps tendon rupture or partial tear which are almost exclusively treated conservatively with a, with a sling 
and physiotherapy. How are distal biceps tendon ruptures treated differently? So this fellow actually needs a relatively urgent uh, consultation with an orthopedic surgeon to reattach the tendon. Optimally, it would be lovely to get this tendon reattached within within the two weeks of the rupture, just so it doesn't retract. So let's review how to distinguish a distal biceps tendon rupture from a proximal biceps tendon rupture. First, distal biceps tendon ruptures are almost exclusively a male injury and occur in a younger age group, like 40 or 50 years old, compared to the proximal biceps tendon rupture, which generally occurs in older patients. Distal biceps tendon ruptures are caused by a sudden, forceful, eccentric contraction of the biceps muscles, like when you suddenly try to lift a heavy bag of cement, like in this case, or a weightlifter who's overzealous as opposed to the proximal biceps tendon, which usually tears because of degenerative change from a minor sort of insignificant force. One of the pitfalls of the physical exam is to assume a proximal tear just because you see a Popeye sign. Remember that you can see a bulge in the biceps with a distal tear as well. The other pitfall of the physical is to assume that nothing can be wrong at the elbow just because flexion and extension of the elbow are normal. The pearl here is that supination of the forearm will be painful in a distal biceps tendon rupture. Look for a bruise in the antecubital fossa signifying a tear of the distal biceps tendon from the proximal radius, and the golden test is the hook test, which we'll have on the blog in the written summary. It's quite simple. If you take your index finger and you try to hook your biceps tendon in the lateral antecubital fossa with your elbow flexed at 90 degrees, you'll feel that taut tendon. If the tendon is ruptured there, you don't feel that taut tendon. You feel an empty space. So those are the physical exam pearls and pitfalls. Now, if you diagnose a patient with a distal tendon rupture based on your history and physical, they should be immobilized and referred within about a week or so, so they can be operated on within two weeks to avoid retraction of the tendon. Next, we're going to talk about what happens when a soccer player stumbles on the field, can't weight bear, has severe knee pain, and can't do a straight leg raise. What kind of diagnoses would you be thinking about? On to our next case, a 45-year-old man with a history of diabetes who's recently been on Cipro for suspected pyelonephritis decided to recently play soccer with his teenage son three times a week. He comes into your ED after slipping on the soccer field, stumbling, and then not being able to weight bear due to severe left knee pain. He's unable to extend his knee against resistance, and he has a lot of trouble performing a straight leg raise. You note a knee effusion, but no joint line tenderness, and his ACL, PCL, MCL, and LCL all seem to be intact with a negative Lachman and pivot shift. He has a negative McMurray test for meniscal tear. Dr. Cheng, what diagnoses are you thinking about in this patient, 
And what's your differential? So if there was ever a red flag for knee injuries, this would be the one. And that red flag is the inability to do a straight leg raise because you're always worried that the person's actually lost the extension ability. So one is to ensure that this individual doesn't have a patellar fracture. It could be possible that he's injured the cartilage into the patella and there's some arthritis, but ensure that there's not a fracture. The second is above and below the patella. You want to ensure there's no quadriceps rupture and you also want to ensure that there's no patellar tendon rupture. So Dr. Cheng, that was a great differential. Dr. Median, how would you differentiate between a patellar fracture, a patellar tendon rupture, and a quadriceps tendon rupture? They're all in the same entity as quadriceps mechanism dysfunction. So it's a problem in the quadriceps mechanism. Now, quadriceps mechanism can be proximal. It becomes a quadriceps tendon rupture. If it's in the middle where the patella is broken, it's a patella fracture with displacement. If it's distal, it's a patella tendon avulsion. So all three actually present in the same manifestation in terms of inability to straight leg raise with significant pain and effusion around the knee. Now you pay attention to some details. Older patient, diabetic, you're usually suspicious of quadriceps tendon rupture. Now, younger patient in their 30s or 40s doing significant sports, a bit more severe injury as opposed to the quads rupture where they have minimal trauma, you are suspicious of patellar tendon avulsion. Direct injury to the knee by a fall or in a motor vehicle accident with a dashboard injury, you're suspicious of a patellar fracture. So literally the mechanism of injury is quite important, the age is important, and then it comes to physical exam. So just like proximal biceps tendon ruptures tend to happen in older folks and distal biceps tendon ruptures tend to happen in younger folks, quadriceps tendon ruptures tend to happen in older folks, while patella tendon ruptures tend to happen in younger folks. And just to go over the mechanism of injury for a quadriceps tendon tear, the mechanism is usually a sudden forceful contraction of the quadriceps with the knee partially flex. So like in this patient, just stumbling on a soccer field can do it. Now, quadriceps tendon tears have been misdiagnosed, especially in the elderly, as things like strokes, radiculopathies, and myelopathies because of an absent patella tendon reflex. So whenever you see an older patient with an absent patella tendon reflex, remember that the mechanism doesn't have to be huge, and it could be a quadriceps tendon tear. Many patients are thought to only have simple knee sprains during their exam in the ED and are not given appropriate immediate follow-up. Only a minority of the patients report a popping sensation with the rupture of the tendon, so it's easy to miss. So let's hear what Dr. Median has to say about the physical examination pearls for quadriceps tendon rupture. And physical examination, if you feel a gap in the quadriceps, is indicative of a quadriceps tendon rupture. Patella fractures, you definitely have significant soreness and pain over the patella, while in patellar tendon avulsions, your gap is distally over the patellar tendon. One thing to remember on the physical exam of patients with all knee injuries, besides making sure you get them on a stretcher and doing a straight leg raise, is to look at their knee from the side. If you look at the knee from the side, that's when suddenly that divot caused by that gap of the quadriceps tear becomes obvious. And same for the patella tendon rupture tear. You see a divot when you look from the side. We'll have some pictures of this divot that you can see from the side in a quadriceps tendon rupture on the written summary and the blog post. 
I have seen multiple times that physicians in the emergency department, when they examine knees, they never perform a straight leg raise. It's simple. We think that we do it, but we don't do it. And I've sometimes I forget to do it also in my own clinic. And then I suddenly I see the patient going, I say, oh, my God, I forgot to do the straight leg raise. So always perform a straight, straight leg, leg raise on knee injury. That's my So I guess, you know, yeah, a lot only. of the... A lot of our emergency departments have a minor or fast track or ambulatory area, and a lot of these areas just have chairs. And so we see a lot of these patients just in chairs. I guess the first thing is to remember whenever, whenever anyone has a knee injury, we've got to get them lying down on the stretcher so that we can do a straight leg and raise. And that's a good point. And make sure you actually undress them appropriately such that both knees are exposed so you can compare them. Okay. All right. So this patient did end up having a quadriceps tendon injury. Why are these so easy to miss in the emergency department? So on history, oftentimes quadriceps ruptures, the mechanism of injury actually is quite unremarkable. It can be very minor given the fact that the person's elderly. So we just don't actually have our spidey senses up that uh, this individual could have even torn a muscle. So the quadriceps tendon injuries are easy to miss because they happen in older people who you think might have arthritis, and sometimes you forget to do the straight leg raise, and the mechanism of injury isn't so impressive. Why is it so important for us to pick up these injuries, Dr. Median? In order to be able to walk on our two legs, we need our quadriceps. Otherwise, we're going to fall and we won't be able to walk. So we're two-legged people. We need our quads mechanism functioning. So if we don't fix the quads... We won't be able to walk. It's as simple as that. The other thing is that we need to fix these within the first week, uh, preferably because, again, like any other tendon, the quads tend to contract and it's hard to reapproximate them. So in my opinion, if a quad tendon rupture comes, it should be probably sent to an orthopedic surgeon within the next couple of days. Okay. And we talked a little bit about how to differentiate the quadriceps tendon rupture from the patella tendon rupture on physical exam, but sometimes the patients have a lot of adipose tissue and you can't see that gap. You know, the gap in the quadriceps tendon above the patella or the gap in the patellar tendon below the patella. If or when you x-ray these patients, what do you look for on the x-ray that might give you a clue in case the physical exam isn't that helpful? So, for example, their straight leg raise is shot, but you can't figure out exactly where the injury is. What can you look for on the x-ray? So most of the time, the x-ray actually of the knee will be perfectly normal. But if you actually look at it very carefully, in some cases, uh, you might actually see that the patella, the inferior pole is actually tilted posteriorly. And as well, you can also get something called patella baja, where the patella is actually a bit lower than usual. By lower than usual, Dr. Cheng means more distal than usual. So to get an idea of what a distally displaced patella is, or in other words, a patella baja, take a look at a few normal lateral knee x-rays, and then take a look at the blog post or written summary to see what a patella baja looks like in a quadriceps tendon rupture. Okay, so as opposed to a patellar tendon rupture where you get a high-riding patella. Yes. Uh, and it, that's called patella alta. Okay. In the quadriceps rupture, then it'll be a little bit lower. And the inferior pole, rather than pointing straight along the tibia, it'll be pointing more posteriorly Posterior towards the, the back tibia. of the leg. That's right. Now, Dr. Median's going to talk about the value of ultrasound in knee injuries, and in particular, the value of ultrasound in quadriceps tendon ruptures. It's funny, I get patients in my clinic, uh, they've got ultrasounds of their knees looking for 
meniscal tears or intra-articular pathology, I can tell you ultrasound in the knee has only one single value. That's to examine the extensor mechanism. It's very accurate. It's very good. So if you have any suspicion of the extensor mechanism, the way to examine it is an ultrasound. But never ask for an ultrasound for meniscal tears. I don't know why it's continuously happening in this country. It's a big question mark for all of us. So from an emergency perspective, would you suggest to our listeners that if they're suspecting a quadriceps tendon tear, if they want to know if it's a partial tear or a full tear, would you, would you suggest to our listeners to order an ultrasound? If they're sure that it's a full tear, they can feel the gap, they can see, you know, the other findings on examination, then I don't think it has any indication for requesting an ultrasound. But you made a good point. If they're suspicious, if it's a partial tear versus a full tear, it's an excellent test, an ultrasound, because partial tears can be treated non-surgically, while full tears need surgical management. Okay, so if the patient comes in, their straight leg raise isn't great, you try it against resistance and you don't quite feel a gap there, the x-ray's normal, but you suspect based on their age and their mechanism of injury that there might be a partial quadriceps tear, that's the patient that you might want to order an ultrasound on, say, for the next day. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. If you actually have a person uh, who can do POCUS and is familiar with MSK ultrasound, um, this is actually a great tendon for us to practice our point-of-care ultrasound skills. Great. So, Dr. Chang, I understand that a lot of these patients will require surgery to fix their blown quadriceps tendon. How do we manage these patients in the ED? So, you've diagnosed a patient with a quadriceps tendon rupture. What do you do? So upon discharge for these individuals, and not talking a partial, we're talking about full quadriceps, unable to straight leg raise, or if there's a patellar fracture, or if there's a patellar tendon rupture, these patients, yes, they require a neomobilizer and have them follow up with the orthopedic surgeon within the week. So this is the only indication where you'll use a neomobilizer, and they can actually be full weight bearing. So remember, the only indication for a neomobilizer is if you lose your extensor mechanism, be it a full quadriceps rupture, a patellar fracture, or a full uh, patellar tendon rupture. Just to clarify, the neomobilizer that you're talking about is the one that wraps around your leg with Velcro in Canada, what we call a Zimmer splint. That's correct. The very bulky one that's very hard to mobilize and it does not let your knee flex or extend. Okay. Yeah. I do see a lot of eMERGE physicians putting people with all kinds of knee injuries in a Zimmer splint. I think Dr. Chan made an excellent point about the knee immobilizer. One single thing I have to say, I recently saw a patient in the fracture clinic, 85-year-old lady, had an undisplaced patellar fracture, could walk with no difficulty, was given a Zimmer splint or a knee immobilizer. She was demented. So what had happened, the proximal edge of the Zimmer splint had dug into her skin on the posterior aspect of the thigh and she had developed a a nerve palsy due to pressure over the lateral aspect of her peroneal nerve, actually. So it's interesting that use your Zimmer splint very, very carefully in elderly patients because it's hard for them to walk. They can fall, they can break their extremities, and sometimes they can have disastrous problems with splints. Splints in elderly, you have to be careful about them. As well, do not use the Zimmer splint for any athletic young individual with a suspected meniscal or ACL injury because they're just going to lose their muscle bulk and just decondition and just prevents them from rehabilitating correctly. 
And last but not least, our final case. A 55-year-old man comes in after playing tennis when he lunged after a shot. He reports hearing a pop and felt like a baseball bat struck him in the calf. He comes in limping but able to weight bear, complaining of calf pain radiating into the knee. And his calf is slightly swollen and tender down to the ankle. Calf pain is worse with range of motion of the ankle. So, Dr. Median, what diagnosis is this a classic history for, and why is it easy to miss in patients who don't present classically? The things that come into my mind are proximal gastrocnemius ruptures versus uh, Achilles tendon injuries in these patients. So these are the most classic way they present. So I want to differentiate between the two because the implications of management are different in the two cases that I mentioned. In the Achilles tendon injury, uh, you literally can either treat them surgically versus non-surgically with active early motion, while in the gastrocnemius ruptures, approximately, you literally don't need any type of immobilization. It's just a matter of time where the patients eventually heal. So this patient had a gastroc tear or so-called tennis leg or the weekend warrior tear which I guess is called the weekend warrior tear because it's in people who only intermittently play active sport. So let's try here to get an understanding of what causes a gastrocnemius tear. When there's a forceful push-off with the foot and the gastrocnemius attempts to contract in the already lengthened state, the proximal end pretty much gets torn off the bone, usually on the medial side. This typically happens in sports that require jumping or running up a hill. Now, this diagnosis is often confused with a DVT. Now, you might be thinking a sudden onset with hearing a pop and feeling like you're being hit by a baseball bat in the calf doesn't sound at all like a DVT, and that's true in the classic cases, but sometimes it's less acute and they complain of pain in the calf and not much else, and your first reaction is to try and rule out a DVT. In fact, a small but significant minority of patients who suffer a gastroc tear report a prodrome of calf tightness several days before the injury, suggesting a potential chronic predisposition, and again, leading to confusion with a DVT. Dr. Cheng will now talk a little bit about how to differentiate a gastroc tear from a DVT on physical exam in those tricky cases. So basically with the physical exam, the leg should not be more swollen from one leg to the other, which is more classic for DBT. Oftentimes there might be just a little bit of swelling over the medial gastrocnemius. And actually when you palpate the gastrocnemius and you find there will be a divot or a deficit actually at the junction where the muscle and the tendon meet. And sometimes you can see some early bruising. And this is a dead ringer that this person actually has injured the medial part of the gastrocnemius. It's wise for you to actually do the Thompson's test to ensure that this individual actually hasn't torn their Achilles tendon because oftentimes they will also feel a pop and feel like somebody kicked them in the back of the leg. The final test is to get the patient to stand on a single leg and to lift up the heel off the ground or actually step and come up onto their toe. And this is called a calf raise. So with an Achilles tendon rupture, they will not be able to do it. With a gastrox tear, it'll be painful. They'll probably be able to do a partial one, um, but it should reproduce the pain. Now, just to recap the physical exam of a gastroc tear, there's usually very little swelling with a gastroc tear compared to a DVT. And if you do find swelling, it's usually localized to the medial calf as opposed to the entire calf. You can often palpate a divot or a deficit at the point where the gastroc tears. And the calf raise test will be painful, 
So when you ask the patient to stand high on their tippy toes, the pain will increase in the proximal medial calf. Next, we're going to talk about the value of imaging in patients who you suspect have a gastroc tear. So let's say you have this patient who you suspect does have a gastroc tear. Is there any value in imaging these patients? Not in the emergency department. This is a diagnosis by physical exam and history. So x-rays are of no value. If you want to do a musculoskeletal ultrasound, I would just get it done at an outpatient clinic with musculoskeletal expertise. And please do not order an MRI. Okay. And Dr. Median, how should we be managing these patients that we've diagnosed with a gastroc tear in the ED? The management of this is similar to an ankle sprain. It's non-surgical conservative management with the rice and physiotherapy can be helpful. And the other note that you make to the patients is that this might take a few months before they can go back to their sports activities, sometimes take three to four months before they can return to their sports activities. And they will have decreased strength specifically on one leg stance on their forefoot. So it's really important to ensure that they're athletic and young to make sure they get their physiotherapy at a sports clinic as soon as possible. What fills in the gap actually is scar tissue, and it's important to actually get the scar tissue mobilized and to get the mobility back so they can get back doing their sport. Before we go, I just want to review syndesmosis injuries, distal biceps tendon ruptures, and quadriceps tendon ruptures. So first, syndesmosis injuries. Syndesmosis injuries can occur in isolation or can be associated with fractures of the foot, ankle, and leg. You need to think of these injuries for every patient who reports a mechanism of injury involving external rotation of the foot. Key clues for the diagnosis are limping with one heel high in the air on their tippy toes. And the two key physical exam maneuvers are the squeeze test, where you squeeze together the tibia and fibula at the level of the mid-calf, and that elicits pain at the ankle. And then there's the external rotation test, where you stabilize the calf with one hand and externally rotate and slightly dorsiflex the foot, which also elicits pain at the high ankle. The x-ray may show a millimeter or two of widening, but if the x-ray is normal and you still suspect a syndesmosis injury, put the patient in a back slab or boot and have them non-weight bearing until they see orthopedics within about a week. If there's more than one millimeter of widening of the syndesmosis on the AP view of the ankle, those patients may need an open reduction and internal fixation, and so orthopedics should be involved early on. So that's syndesmosis injuries. Next, Let's review the distal biceps tendon rupture and how to differentiate a distal biceps tendon rupture from the more proximal biceps tendon rupture. Now, a distal biceps tendon rupture is almost exclusively a male injury and occurs in a younger age group compared to the proximal biceps rupture, which generally is in older patients as a result of degenerative problems. Distal biceps tendon ruptures are caused by a sudden, forceful, eccentric contraction of the biceps, as opposed to the proximal biceps tendon, which usually tears because of degenerative change from a minor force. The key pitfall in the physical exam is to assume a proximal tear just because you see the classic Popeye sign. Remember that you can see a bulge in the biceps with a distal tear as well. Flexion and extension of the elbow can be spared in a distal biceps tendon rupture, However, supination is almost always painful, 
So don't forget to try supination if you see a Popeye sign. Look for a bruise in the antecubital fossa, but the golden test is the hook test, where you try to hook your index finger around the distal biceps tendon, and instead of feeling that taut tendon, you feel nothing. These patients need to be immobilized and referred early before the tendon retracts, which is a common theme in this episode. Finally, I want to review the quadriceps tendon rupture. Now, don't get caught calling a quadriceps tendon rupture a simple knee sprain, because these patients need a knee immobilizer, timely orthopedic follow-up, as opposed to a tensor bandage and rice you'd have with a simple knee sprain. The straight leg raise is so key. Do a straight leg raise on every patient with a knee injury and crouch down and look from the patient's side at the level of the knee for a divot or depression proximal to the patella, indicating a quadriceps tendon tear in the older patient, or distal to the patella, indicating a patella tendon tear in the younger patient. Without an intact extensor mechanism, patients can't walk. Now, the x-ray may be normal in a quadriceps tendon tear, but if you see a patella baja, that's the patella appearing more distal than usual, or the inferior part of the patella points more posterior than usual, then you've clinched the diagnosis of a quadriceps tendon rupture. On the other hand, if you see a high-riding patella, one that's more proximal than normal, then you're probably looking at a patella tendon rupture. Well, before we wrap it up, I'll leave you with a quote from one of the greatest Canadian physicians of all time, Dr. William Osler. When schemes are laid in advance, it's surprising how often the circumstances fit in with them. So thank you very much, Dr. Cheng and Dr. Median, for taking your time out for this podcast. I learned a ton. Thank you. Yes, and thank you very much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for organizing this. It's been a slice.